Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today... The founders of Extinction Rebellion, Gail Bradbrook and Claire Farrell. We want life to live, and I think there's that part of ourselves when that's in the driving seat, we'll, we'll solve this. It's entirely about being a human being and, being and what you love and what you care about. Gail and Claire will be showing us how the critical mass required to foment global change may be much closer than we think. It's time to get people upset provoke the cultural immune response we need to prevent our own extinction. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I'll be in Los Angeles next week at LA Review of Books Festival on Sunday, April 14th, and for free at Newhouse in Hollywood on Monday, April 15th. I'm also doing a special open classroom at the 92nd Street Y in New York on May 21st. More info about these events and more at teamhuman.fm. You can find our archive of broadcasts and written versions of my monologues at Medium. And as always, you can support this show by becoming a subscriber, getting books and t-shirts, and access to our speak pipe and special content. I gave a talk at Winter Music Conference a couple of weeks ago. It's a group of old uh, ravers and music designers and club organizers. And somehow, when I was among them, it felt like I'd come full circle saying stuff I hadn't even said since 
the DisinfoCon back in 1999. That was another crazy conference with speakers like Grant Morrison and Robert Anton Wilson and Marilyn Manson. I got to do the opening keynote, and I remember I begged the counterculture simply to accept victory. We won, I remember I, I tried to explain. And now the overculture is trying to learn from us, to be like us. We shouldn't hoard our cool, but share it. In other words, don't reject them or George Bush or any of these yuppies for who they were, but welcome them for who they want to be now that they see that we were right. And I realize times are hard. Economic equality is high. Racism is on the rise. Climate crisis is in progress. And all of these issues need to be addressed urgently. But I'm also growing increasingly concerned about the rigidity of the progressive left in its understanding of positive social change. There's almost a refusal to accept victory. So, for instance, uh, earlier this year, when, when a brand like Nike decides to make ads in favor of Colin Kaepernick, I get it. We want to reject them. It's, it's blatant pandering to Black Lives Matter, right? But it's also an indication that a big company, a big, big corporation wants to show it's on a particular side of a conflict. Or when Pepsi and Kendall Jenner do a zillion dollar advertisement paying homage to some sort of Black Lives Matter rally. I know, yes, it's inane. It reduces social justice activism to some sort of fashion statement. But it's also a sign that Pepsi wants to get on board whatever this thing is as best they can understand it. It may have been a watered-down, issueless protest they were depicting, but no one could miss that they were trying to side with millennial angst and social justice warriorship in general, just as many millennials do. You know, as social satire, in some ways, it reveals a whole lot about activism as cultural fashion. But that's not the point here. Or maybe that's the real reason so many activists are so triggered by this. We know, at least in part, that we too are suckered by the sexy fun of all this and sometimes have trouble articulating what it is exactly about the system that we want to change. But no matter how symbolic or watered down or branded these efforts, what the corporations are trying to do is get on the right side of history. Think of it cynically, and it makes perfect sense. These giant corporations are picking sides in the culture wars. It's not short-lived pandering. They can't afford that. Unlike politicians who can target different sides of themselves to different constituencies or simply appeal to a local base, corporations necessarily communicate to everyone at once. Super Bowl advertising is one-size-fits-all. So when a corporation decides to back Colin Kaepernick, BLM, economic equality, or climate remediation, they're making a bet that these sides are the ones that are going to win. It's not simply employees or shareholders pushing management to do the right thing, even though that looks more earnest. No, it's future forecasters telling the branding department where things are headed. It's companies realizing that their own futures better be tied to the side that's going to win. 
cynical, maybe, but they're not people. They're corporations. They don't have feelings. They just have power. Instead of rejecting such efforts, we should welcome them. Think of them as as dinosaurs that can be trained. Likewise, I've been just as as disturbed by many progressives take no prisoners approach to social justice. Bernie Sanders, perhaps the most responsible person for bringing the Democratic Party home from its neoliberal vacation, he became the object of a lot of ridicule for having used the word niggardly in a speech 30 years ago. Now, this word, I won't use it again, I promise. For those who don't know, it has nothing to do with anyone's race. It means stingy. The word was on my SATs in 1979. And yet, Now that we've moved into an era of triggers, we can't use the word because it sounds like a racial slur. I get that. By the same token, we shouldn't be talking about Burger King Whoppers because that name contains a racial slur also. But that's not the point. The problem is that the more we attack people for whatever they did before they were woke, the less progress we're going to make. Why agree that we should move beyond a certain behavior or attitude if doing so simply makes us vulnerable to attack? So how can a D.C. politician, for example, push for the Washington Redskins to change their name when she knows there's footage somewhere of her rooting for the team or wearing a jersey with a Native American on it? Even though the politician may agree with the need for a change, she'll have to resist or at least slow the wheels of progress lest she get caught under the cart herself. Intolerance and shaming is not the way to win allies. Progressives are mad, hurt, and traumatized. But we've got to dismantle this circular firing squad and begin to welcome positive change rather than punish those who are trying to get woke. I'm Arthur Brock, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Anandia Roy, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Aaron Barnes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Aaron Gell, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you, alive, from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. There's an emotional component to waking up to our social, political, economic, and climate predicaments and a mix of anger, shock, exhilaration, fear. Yet, properly integrated, they can all serve us as we attempt to muster the collective fortitude to confront these interconnected challenges. I'm honored to have two guests today who are practicing state-of-the-art activism that acknowledges and leverages these various emotional components. They've begun a movement centered in London, but spreading fast around the world, called Extinction Rebellion. They shut down bridges in London last year and are planning to shut down the whole city of London next week until government agrees to engage with them about this global emergency. I'm joined by molecular biophysics PhD and economic justice campaigner Gail Bradbrook and body politic fashion designer turned hunger strike activist Claire Farrell, who took an hour off their preparations to share what's happening with Team Human. Hello. Oh, my gosh. So there's so much much to talk about. So something just happened yesterday. 
some semi-naked person running through parliament or something we heard about all the way here in the states was that some was that a friend of yours it was 12 people it was 12 extinction rebellion people they all got arrested some of them glued themselves um there was a couple dressed as elephants uh, <laughs> We have this newspaper called The Sun and uh, they, they've always got they've always got the cheesiest headlines and they had things like abreast of the issues and, and, and stuff like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was in all the main papers. Um, We'd been told by The Guardian some time ago by one of the journalists that if we had 50 people sent to jail, we'd get a front cover. Well, it turns out 12 people getting naked in Parliament does the job. <laughs> so that's a bit better. That's great. I mean, part of what I love about Extinction Rebellion, which I guess we'll, we'll explain more fully as we go, is the almost mathematical precision of, okay, if we have you know this many people at a remote high leverage point, it can create this much change. I mean, one of the, one of the most intriguing parts of, of uh, you know, some of your, your, I guess, the background information on Extinction Rebellion, which is a, you know, a, a climate, I guess, a, a UK-based but now global climate change effort, um, is the, the sort of, well, the research that you did as, a, as I guess, as a PhD of, uh, uh, of civil disobedience, that if a certain percentage of people uh, protest or come out, it leads to social change? Um, yeah, so that's Erica Chenoweth's um, data. She's an American researcher. She, she's based in the American military, I understand, and I think her aim was to disprove that um, non-violent civil disobedience was effective, but she ended up proving it was the best way to go about things. It's more stable. And as part of researching, I think, of order 330-odd moments of revolution or significant social change, she, she found that this magic number of up to 3.4% of the population need to be in active participation. And that's all it takes yeah, I mean, it's no small feat. I mean, well, actually, the American civil rights movement at its height was 1% of the population. Huh. So, so it, it can be less. But the, the point is, you do have to have active participation. And so in the UK, we think it's around 2 million people. It really certainly answers this question that goes along the lines of what about the Daily Mail readers, which may not mean much to American audiences, but it's the it's the kind of newspaper where you go if you want to hear quite racist or, you know, right-wing kind of... Right, like our New York Post or something, yeah. It's a, it's not a Murdoch publication, is it? Uh, it's there, there are five billionaires who own most of the press in the UK, mm. um, the Daily Mail is a different guy, but it's it's the, it's of the same breed. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be it'd be great to get, I guess, both your stories and and kind of how you how you found each other. I mean, I'm guessing as far as Extinction Rebellion itself, that Gail, you were you were working with uh, Rising Up before then. So I guess your your history with uh, social change and climate activism predates this current uh, current movement. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think I started being an activist when I was nine, to be honest. So it depends how far you want to go back. I joined the Green Party when I was 14. Uh, I helped get a hunt sabotage group off the ground when I was a teenager. I've been involved in the transition movement and economic literacy and... I'd set something up called Compassionate Revolution. So I, I think the way I often say it is I failed many times in the past to to, to do anything spectacular, but I did try. <laughs> and then how did ex- the extinction part, how did Extinction extinction Rebellion get conceived? I mean, so the, the main bit of the story from my perspective was having tried to start a mass tax disobedience. I used to do some work with the Tax Justice Network. So... Uh, and 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 that didn't, the mass tax disobedience didn't work, and so I actually went to uh, as a pagan prayed very deeply with some uh, medicine to ask what I needed to ask for what I needed, which was for a team of people to work with and for what I actually called the codes for social change, and I, I can get into more details about that. But within a month of that prayer, this whole journey started. And it literally, one one moment of it involved uh, having a four-hour meeting with Roger Hallam, where he said to me at the end of it, I've just given you the codes for social change, which was literally the words of this prayer. So it's very mysterious, some of it from my perspective. But very practically speaking, what happened after that was that Roger and I were talking to various groups and trying to get a group together that would have a strategy. I mean, that had been my longing for a long time was, look, surely we can think strategically about how we change things. Roger had been doing a lot of research into how things change and had a lot of texts and literature and research that I needed to read up on. And we got some training. So we, we then tested some some tactics out for a f- couple of years. And that's uh I, I, Claire can say when she came on board in that in that phase of testing and then it was April uh, in my house in Stroud last year when we made this decision that we were ready to try and start a rebellion and there mm. were 15 of us in a cafe in Bristol in the May p- planning this thing so it, it does feel like a dream come true it's quite amazing I have to pinch myself at times. <laughs> and Claire what was the path that got you to that same sort of point of intersection well my my background had been in like creative activism and uh, in a much less pointed way um and then in trying to work within my industry which was fashion trying to um educate and to run small businesses that addressed all of the issues of my sort of sector because I thought that it needed completely overhauling and when I left university I think I thought that I was going to like just totally fix the fashion industry because someone had to do it and no one was trying and um And at some point several years ago, I think I just felt really dejected and like nobody was willing to do anything of the scale of the magnitude, what was necessary. And so when I saw um, the news about Roger Hallam on hunger strike at King's College over divestment, part of a campaign that he did, it stood out to me as somebody doing something which felt like an appropriate action to take. And then it won, which was also something that I found uh, out later, which was very appealing, of course. So um, I went and like met him at a meeting thinking everyone's going to be interested in this. It's, it's, you know, such a sort of vital response to something that's very urgent. And there was only about six people there. And I watched some videos of some Ad Gale in it <laughs> doing uh, civil disobedience. And we spoke about the sort of ideas behind rising up and I got involved in doing roadblocks and then 
we did roadblocks every two weeks for several months, which was quite exhausting when you're not used to going and regularly doing things like that. And then within a year, I was also on hunger strike. So I sort of just threw myself at it, really. And it felt like something that made me, it was quite cathartic. It made me, made me feel much better about things, which I sort of feel maybe I'd sort of partly already gone through a process of like giving up because I felt like nobody was going to do it. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so from the, the fashion perspective originally, were you thinking in terms of, you know, the, the problems with fashion about, you know, how it makes young women feel about their bodies and, and the competition for social status? Or were you looking at, you know, global supply chain of these, you know, awful chemicals or the slave labor going into manufacturing? I mean, what was sort of the, or was it everything? Well, I, I did chemistry A-level and I was always really interested in science. So for me, it came from like a an environmental science place. And like really it began with the hole in the ozone layer. So when I was at school and we knew that like the science around uh, understanding how we break down ozone with CFCs was like understood in the 1970s and then I was learning about it at school and it was still in consumer products and they were still just only talking about phasing it out whilst we were making a big hole in the sky and everyone was saying it was like going to be catastrophic. I thought, you know, what what's really going on here is like everybody ignoring science, which which understands what we're doing to the environment and people can't act on it. And really, that's still the same question, that unfortunately, I ask myself now, but, that, but that's led me in a, quite a scientific basis for the start of my journey definitely so I was always kind of interested in in sustainability from that perspective and then as I went down the road I got more interested in social issues and more interested in people's sort of how people are affected individually by the fashion industry as well so the the breadth of all the issues sort of came gradually um, after that and so I've been I've been working in that space for quite a long time now so I see the sort of the way that everything's interconnected more. But at the beginning, it felt like, for me, it was all about pollution and science, mostly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting for, for both of your paths, and this is not to pick on others, but um, there are many people who've had similar origin stories, yet gone in very, uh, in, in less constructive directions. So I know many, uh, many a young person who, you know, goes down to South America and has a full on ayahuasca experience and come back, you know, thinking that they're, you know, channeling the voice of Quetzalcoatl telling us to take <laughs> care of our planet, you know, and, and, you know, maybe write great books and do talks and then, you know, do more ayahuasca and get laid and start a cult and yay. <laughs> um, or people in fashion, you know, they come, they see, oh, look, there's supply chain problems, there's chemical problems, there's this, and then become part of, you know, the, the you know, Nike or, or you know, H&M marketing campaign to connect with concerned millennials, you know, and, and you know, you have a nice picture of the planet on your polyester briefcase or something, you know, that, that how do you uh, prevent, I mean, and almost this is like asking someone a question about Tibetan Book of the Dead, but how do you, how do you prevent being distracted by the, uh, by going down one of those roads, which is so much easier, but yields so much more immediate positive feedback. Instead, you ended up kind of pushing through towards that, that scarier, more, more potentially cynical place. 
It's a really good question. I mean, I, I was part of the CSR machinery for a while, by the way. So we've all been there, probably. Mm. I, I think we live in such a deeply narcissistic, individualistic culture that all of us are going to be dragged into it. And I think there's a real team issue here about who do you hang out with? Who keeps reminding you of reality? And it's that inner voice that's speaking to you saying, fuck, this is not getting sorted, is it? You know, you, you see the cars, one person in jamming up the roads, you see the fracking starting and you, you, you've got that deep dis-ease, if you like, and are you going to listen to that? I, th I think the difference is, from my perspective, has been that ongoing seeking of information about how does it work? I mean, I'm fascinated by everything, really. Mm. Like, where's the psychology? You know, I'm still always learning. I'm, 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 I'm reading, listening about... Um, uh, terror management theory at the minute, having read Catherine Ingham's essay, you know, what, what is it that keeps people in denial? What, what, why do parents especially not want to think about this stuff when they've got the kids? Mm. <laughs> They're going to face this, you know, so, and, and there's, there's a, there's a lot of information out there and it's sort of how you, how you come to understand that something's possible and then how you constellate a team of people that are willing to put in, the time and effort to work together. And it does take time, doesn't it, to trust each other, to to get clear on what the pathway is and to try things out. And maybe it's also a little bit, from my perspective, fueled originally by that narcissism that kind of goes, well, it's probably not going to work, Gail, but at least I'll look like I tried. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, so I, I don't think we're, I'm not anything special in that way. We, we, but 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 there's something here, Doug. I think, or oh, Douglas. Do you prefer Doug or Douglas? When there's time, Douglas, it feels less okay. like a golfer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call you Doug just to be a <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, so um, I think it's for me. It's really interesting that herding effect, isn't it? I we that that people have been ready for something. And so in the words of Mickey Kashtan, who's been supporting us to think about decentralization, she studied things like the Occupy movement. She said that you don't create a social movement, you invite it into being because it's already there. It already wants to exist. And I think so many people have said, I just have been waiting for this for so long. Right. I mean, well, that's what Chairman Mao said, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can't, I mean he, he did know how to organize on a certain level, even if his politics was bad. But right, that you can't you can't foment a revolution. You can just facilitate one that that wants to happen. And I suppose the same with this, although there's got to be a reason why you've been able so far to at least to catalyze this when. I mean, and I know over the last 20 years, we've been trying and watching so many, I mean, from, from, gosh, my first Earth Day, you know, to now, uh, you know, Occupy gave me some hope, but it was a little bit, you know, it, it, it was a baby step in some ways, but it was, uh, it was the very, the first, you know, first half of the first inning of a much longer, <laughs> much longer game, you know, and, and you obviously took some lessons from that, but do you think it was just the readiness or do you think that you've you've set the table in a slightly different way to allow things to happen? 
I think there's been a number of factors, some that were designed and some that were good luck. So some some you might put down to in, intuition. So here's what I think the factors are. One is that we'd understood something about building social movements from people like the INE Institute who give training and momentum-driven organising. Quite frankly, there's lots that we haven't done that well. And let's stay humble here. This thing could collapse into a heap by the end of the year, you know. So mm-hmm. we're, um, we're just doing our best. So there's the, the, some real graft was put in by people. So every time somebody would like the Facebook page, uh, one of the first things that Claire did was to um, help us to decide on the name, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a... 25-step process and we still nearly fell out over it. <laughs> but, um, you know, you've got to get some of that right, haven't you? So anyway, every time somebody liked the Facebook page, then you'd somebody would reach out to them and say, do you want to talk in your local community? And somebody would go and do a talk to them. And so that, you know, we have we've must have delivered about 200 talks in, in just in the UK. So that's, that's some sheer bloody effort gone into that, right? And then obviously in the summer, you had the... Um, colliding of the IPCC report, the UN, what the UN was saying about climate change. You had things like the Hothouse Earth paper, the writings of Davis Wallace, Wallace Wells, mm. you know, who's, uh, so, so there was a number of kind of, and then also just the weather, you know, and obviously people in other countries have been on the front line of climate nightmares for many years, but for more Western countries to be, feeling the heat quite literally so there was that factor another factor was the innovation that roger came up with that we should tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly which when it turns out when you look into that more deeply is two parts of a three-part emergency mode messaging so that's you can look that up online by jane morton emergency mode messaging but the idea is that the green movement has made a fundamental error and was possibly deliberately dragged into this error that you're not allowed to tell people things that frighten them because you've got to keep them hopeful you've got to say well you know it's pretty bad but you could do this right that's the sales sort of sales theory uh of of social change yeah well uh, and you only have to look at uh, anti-tobacco campaigns or campaigns around, you know, speeding or whatever, they use fear, but they right. use a three-part process. They say, look, this really, really terrible thing c- could happen. It's possible for it not to happen if you do this thing. So that's holding the vision that change is possible. We, we're now asking you to act according to this information. That's the three bits of emergency mode messaging. It fits very well with psychology and that people step up in emergencies and people can have a really good time in emergency and really bond in their communities and so on. So it's emergencies. I mean, I think the um, the Chinese for the word emergency is, is, is some combination of the word danger and opportunity. Right. I think the other piece that's been really significant again and I think to an extent by instinct is the piece around grief and trauma Mm -hmm. that Extinction Rebellion we understood relatively early on I was going through it in in August when I was um, doing a rewrite of the science of the talk and and how we were going to present the talk and I was just breaking down really I was having a grieving process and it just became clear to me that that's something that I hadn't faced even though like Claire you know I've been arrested for you know for myself 
at a fracking site with my arm in an arm tube and an incinerator site and all, all the rest of it. I'd got my clothes off on, on, on the steps of a, of a parliament building and all the rest of it. So tried all this stuff and yet somehow hadn't faced up to how I feel about this thing. And there's something where we've, you know, it's not for everybody, but where we've said to people, this, when you face it, feels awful. It feels awful. And if you are willing to face that and it's really important to do it with other people or you think you're going a bit bonkers, then you will have a something of a breakdown. And through the process of grief and trauma, we talk about, you know, grief is the price you pay for love. And when you feel love, you feel courage. And there's and, and so you can come out the other side of this thing. I would say it actually comes in cycles. Yeah. And and I'll say, I mean, uh, I spent not last night, the night before last night, I spent, I don't know, four or five hours reading all the background on your stuff and on from both of you and then about the climate and all the links to what's going on. And um, I I woke up around four in the morning, having had this dream of, I don't know why I'm even sharing this, but I had this dream that I had, like, I, I had this sense of extreme anguish, right? And it was right in my solar plexus. I felt like, <gasps> and I was sure, even as I'm waking up from the dream, I thought, oh, someone, I, I get it, my, my parent died. I don't mean magically. I mean, oh, I just probably just forgot that I'm, I'm in mourning, that a parent died or my child died or something. And I'm like waking up counting, no, they're okay. And my dad died a long time ago. And my wife is here. My child's okay. What just happened to me? And I thought maybe, you know, first I thought it was ESP that some friend had died. And then I thought, oh, maybe I'm mourning my theater career, that I that I left the theater to become a writer. I didn't know what. <laughs> and, you know, and then I realized, oh, my gosh, this is, this is, I'm finally accepting the, the tragedy of of what we've done of of the 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 innocence lost of our civilization the 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 real cost of capitalism and colonialism and endless extraction and trying to deliver exponential growth to the market is the the potential extinction of of our own and many other species yeah i i think that for me um as a fashion sort of professional and like educator and stuff I I also preceded this whole thing with a project with a friend of mine Miles called Body Politic and we tried I said I wanted to make the most radical clothes that I possibly could and for that they needed to like turn people into an urgent message and they also needed to be not for sale and it felt at the time like it was like super basic because I was just going we can't sell this it can't be for sale it has to be not about money and then it became like a participatory project where people make their own stuff and loads of things came out of that like people can't handle being given something for free as much mm. as like they can handle paying for it and I think the fact that this work has been um so sort of framed in such a different way to like anything else that's market related for me is super important like the people who are being given some expenses by this organism are not claiming a salary they're not living off it they're not relying on it next month or the month after we've got very short sort of length of time that people are guaranteed to have support to help with this because it's important that it doesn't become something which is like self-protecting or self-sustaining as part of 
an economic system which doesn't know how to support work which is only there for the purpose of like virtue and not there to serve any part of the market so it feels to me like this is also an interesting progression into something that refuses to be like bound up by the by the logic of money or markets it's entirely about being human being and be it and what you love and what you care about and it's not about getting five pounds a month or trying to trying to make sure that it still exists in a year's time like mm -hmm. if it does its if it does its job then that's cool you know and it's interesting an interesting reversal there because I mean I I critique a lot of things as uh, that we do so much for its utility value and we understand human beings in terms of their utility value meaning how are they serving the market but you know and the critique of this sort of work could be that oh well it has no utility value if you don't have a market for it then it doesn't really exist but really what you're saying is no actually this is pure utility value we're not serving that bizarre symbolic abstracted value of markets and money and you know this is not helping the stock market but it's it's has the pure utility value of species sustainability you know well, to be honest Douglas we actually move away from sort of utilitarian ethics and talk mm. about virtue ethics because this is not about calculating whether we're going to be successful or not. Obviously, we're trying to optimize that and we're trying to look at what things we need to do that give us the best, best chances of success. But ultimately, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And I feel really clear about that. And in a deeper part of myself, you know, when you describe that crisis you had in the middle of the night last night, there's, I, I think there's something in our collective memory. Daniel Pinchbeck talks about trauma as a collective environmental trauma being the way that there'll be a consciousness shift in humanity. I think there's something in our consciousness and it's held in the more traditional ways in the indigenous cultures that knows that life isn't about me and you and Claire and anybody else. Life's about life. It's beyond us. It's bigger than us. We're the entirety of life and we have our place in it in this version of life you know here's me being a gale version of life and you know I'm quite annoying at times actually I'll be quite <laughs> glad to see the back of me at some point but there's other versions of life you know and 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 uh in the in the indigenous traditions you honor the ancestors and acknowledge the past and you honor the and protect the next seven generations and I think that feeling if you tap into it like it sounds like you did last night it's not even the death of your children because as sad as that is we all know that's also going to happen the reality is that our whole beings there's an aspect of us that wants life to live and when you can be in that space and you can really ask yourself, have, have I, have we had enough of this civilization in its current const, in its current form? I am sick of it. You know, are you really sick of it? So, what are you going to do about it? If you want life to live, and for us to move into something else, because we have the imagination. I know this is your team, human piece, right? We mm. have this incredible imagination, this incredible ability to be something amazing in the universe and we can be also just awful and terrible and do the worst things well we 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 want life to live and I think there's that part of ourselves when that's in the driving seat we'll we'll solve this
and and the first step to that seems to be to, I mean, I, for those who aren't that familiar with uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion, it seems the most visible first step is to sit on bridges, right? Which is what what happened in when was that in? That February? was in November. No, in no, November. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that is the first step. The first step is to get some of the information and to digest it and to really let it go beyond your left brain, the information, and let it sink into your guts and and have a dark night of the soul. I think that's the best first step, actually. You hear about people who... There have been lots of people who've already been there panicking and they're like, thank God somebody's acknowledged this. But I think... And I'm even talking about environmentalists. I'm talking about people who've had to and blessings and honourings to people that have spent years fighting. Uh, but But I would even say to many of the Green Movement is to have that pause to say where we really are here now and to have that feeling. I'm not instructing anybody. I mean, I know many environmentalists would have deeply been through that process, but I can say for myself and other people that I know that we hadn't, and it's so important. Right, but then Um, you can't stay alone with it, or you turn into the Unabomber, or, uh, uh, like, a lot of my friends are, are... I mean, and it's, I'm, I'm happy they have civil defense supplies or they have water in their basement, but they also have shotguns. You know, they're thinking about, okay, this awful shit's going to happen. So how am I going to protect myself and my family from everybody else? Like the, uh, like the billionaires with their, uh, uh, with their bomb shelters. That seems to be a lot of people's first reactions in an individualistic society, either that or despair. And you're suggesting that, no, 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 now, which is what I'm arguing too, sort of find the others, that you can't do this alone. Absolutely. And that's when you get on the bridges. And actually, it's a load of fucking fun, to be honest, hanging out. It's, I, I, I keep describing it this way, and it may not be the same for everybody. I think it's really quite sexual. It's quite a sexual energy. It's, it's that bit of you that goes, you know what, fuck it, I'm not putting up with this anymore. And you, it's very cheeky. Uh, and it's very connected. And we had the most beautiful time in London. I mean, it's such such days of our lives, such, you know, as Quakers say, live life adventurously. You know, what does what does love call us to do? And when you're living in that way, it's it's just awesome. That a small group of people can change the world It is the only thing that ever it's critiqued as well, though. Is, oh, look at them. They're having too much fun. Or, oh, look, Johnny went to the rebellion because there were pretty girls there. I mean, as if that's a bad reason to go. You know? Well, they, they, actu- they actually they actually fueled the, the Serbian revolution on on uh, on sex. So I, I understand that you had to you, you couldn't be part of the rebellion in Serbia without doing 10 graffitis of a fist uh, symbol, the symbol of the re- revolution. And so that, you know, you, c- you couldn't just be talking a good game. You had to get out there and do that. And then they had parties, you, you know, and I'm really happy to see XRUs taking off at the minute. I think they're going to you know, I think it's. I'm 47 soon. I think it's for our generation to have started this process and we're like wading through treacle. But when the young ones, as they are with the school strikes, are rising up, you know, this it'll be irresistible. It'll be unstoppable. But in the Serbian revolution, what happened, they had these parties and then people would get arrested. They're like, hang about, you're arresting kids. You're just having a party. And for every arrest you got, you got a T-shirt. And when you had 10, you got a black T-shirt. And then you were, then you were super cool and everybody wanted to have sex with you. And it was fueled by sex, you know, so bring it on. Great. Oh. Right. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bonus. 
why does everything have to be so earnest? I can tell you when I'm dealing with, you know, and I know Claire, we, we, we are working really, really hard. It's a horrendous uh, number of emails and spreadsheets and it's not fun most of it. So if we get to have some days of um, pleasure in the middle of it, then so be it. You know, I, I keep saying I get arrested just because I need some time out. Mm. <laughs> you get you get food brought to you in your cell and you can sit there yeah. reading books. It's like happy days, you know. It's also, there's also a piece in like uh, some of the research by which I guess Roger agrees with and this and this wonderful person Danny Burns who's um, written about the poll tax rebellion in the UK and has been involved in in sort of action-based movements for years and years that like actions create like a sense of unity and they help people to feel that they do something positive together. You go out, you have a good time, you feel like connected with all the people and it helps you to feel like a stronger unit and a, and a big sense of trust with the people that you go out and like reclaim some space or glue yourself to a building or whatever it is. And the sort of sense of togetherness that people have from that is actually really important because I think the actions do something that counters the sort of hyper-individualized and therefore actually sort of like quite lonely and quite vulnerable place that a lot of people are in because of the way that our society seems to be at the moment. So for them to be like spaces that are either full of grief, like a funeral or full of joy, like we were on the bridges or full of like contention, like holding a people's assembly on the street and asking people to talk about quite difficult topics, like all of those things do help to like go against this sort of understood uh narrative which I feel that I've grown up into that you're basically on your own and you need to like save money and protect your own and buy a house and do all the things the right way and have a pension and all of this stuff and actually going against all of that feels like quite important and actions that feel fun and sexy and exciting and together like do they do sort of like tackle all of that just through one one thing, you know, one event. Well, they feel sexy and exciting to us. I mean, when I walked around London and talked with, uh, what do we, we want to call them, regular people about, well, how did you feel when the five bridges were blocked? Said, oh, motherfuckers, you know, <laughs> blocking the bridges, <laughs> getting in the way, it ruined my day, I couldn't get to work. And, uh, um, uh, and, and I remember back in the, you know, when, when, when we shut down the Golden Gate Bridge and the AIDS protests, uh, you know, 20 years ago, um, people didn't understand, well, wait a minute, I get it. You're upset about AIDS. Why are you ruining my commute? Uh, you know? <laughs> but but so that is exactly the point, though, and that's in the literature now. ACT UP is one of the classic case studies of that's why you have to do that. So nobody was talking about AIDS research and how the gay community was getting treated in terms of um, medical care. And... ACT UP made it impossible not to be having that conversation. So a classic thing in the literature is that people will say, well, you know, obviously I agree with them, but I don't like the way they're going about it. Well, the point is they're having the conversation. So it's not our job to get liked. It's our job to get people talking to shift what's called the Overton window of what what public dialogue is. So one of my favourite things from the autumn was one of our very right wing 
politicians you might have heard of called Nigel Farage got caught up in one of the roadblocks and uh, apparently he said that we were economic terrorists and then started talking about extinction well job done you know so right. although when although when we do do the roadblocks because we are super lovely about it so we have these apologetic signs so I'm talking about the swarming roadblocks now but not the bridges actions but you go on the road for seven minutes seven minutes on and off so you're creating a lot of disruption you have these signs saying we're really sorry seven minutes and we'll be gone and then they go and give the car drivers a biscuit um because you know we all love a biscuit don't we and and <laughs> and, and and i've been told that about 50 percent of car drivers say well yeah it's a bit annoying but actually i agree with you and i'm glad you're doing it thank you so Right. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I look at it from the model of uh, uh, immune response, you know, the immune response of the body. And it's like, at a certain point, the, the immune response does create inflammation. You know, and inflammation is part of the healing process. If you don't get inflamed, you don't sneeze it out. You don't poop it out. You know, you've got to, uh, you've got to respond. And that was, you know, that was part of the, uh, the ACT UP um, the logic of ACT UP was, you know, not only does the, the body fail to, to mount an immune response to the AIDS virus, but our society is failing to mount a response to the AIDS crisis. You know, and likewise, it feels in, in, you know, Extinction Rebellion, yes, it's going to annoy some people, but that's sort of the inflammation required to then uh, uh, get some kind of organismic response. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good analogy. Then next, on April 15th, which is after we broadcast this, so it's coming up, um, April 15th, is the plan is to just shut down London until something, <laughs> until something's done? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> there's, um, so the, the plans are like in development still. So there's a few things that may change, but essentially um, lots and lots of people are going to take to the streets and um, take up space and cause a huge disruption until until people in government agree to to speak meaningfully about doing something that might change the sort of suicidal course that we're on and that will involve probably an escalation strategy much like we've used in the past so you start with something and then you say please can we have a meeting and we need to do this and then when they don't reply or when they say no then you say okay and then there's an escalation and people will do something different there's lots and lots of people coming from all over the country so a bit booking on coaches there's people who've set off on a march already from like Cornwall and from other parts of the country they're they're walking here and they set off what two two weeks ago now so um there are some extremely determined people on their way here and um yeah and we've all been working very hard to make sure that when they when they arrive we get to go out and uh there'll be there'll be beauty on the streets as as well as disruption and, and obviously that's the UK plan. There's, this is an international rebellion. There's groups in 30 countries across the world. And so we'll see what other countries come up with as part of their actions. And are um, any of them in the US? <laughs> Two or three people, at least. Oh, there's quite a few groups in oh, the good. US. Yeah, yeah. Because I know, you know, we have Sunrise here. Who I don't know yeah. if they're working with you, but it's, a, a, it's certainly a sympathetic effort. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of American colleagues, but we were talking to Paul Engler recently, who wrote the book, This Is an Uprising. And uh, Sunrise, in my understanding, are using the same sort of momentum-driven organising. In fact, I think they're probably doing a lot better job of it than than we've done, so we need to learn from them. Um, and then obviously you've got the um, school strikes as well. 
Right, but are we doing, is, is April 15th happening in the U.S. too? Yeah, in my understanding, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw that, you know, in New York when there was the big action at the ice rink a few weeks ago. The New York group involves a really wonderful performance artist called Reverend Billy. I don't know if oh, you know yeah. about him. And uh, and that group I watched like very keenly on the on the live stream on Facebook from my kitchen whilst they did their first like outing and they went out with beautiful music and marched around the street. And, and then they went to, I think, the Rockefeller Ice Rink and uh, laid down on the ice and made an extinction symbol on the ground and somebody climbed on the gold statues and hung a big banner on it and several people got arrested for that. So that was their first sort of peaceful mm. law-breaking action. So New York meetings seem to be well underway and then there's lots of other chapters, I think, in, in the United States all around the country. Yeah, so I haven't got the figures to hand, but there's, um, yeah. there's a yeah, significant number of groups in the US. And then the... the the other tricky part then, so, you know, so we're dealing with, there's this sort of uh, 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 spiritual organismic uh, uh, origins of it. There's the emotional piece that we have to deal with, which then brings us to the organization piece, which is part of forging, you know, the, the, the solidarity and rapport and uh, uh, friendship that you need to make it through this is part of what then leads to the organization. And the organization then leads to uh, ultimately specific demands of, I hate to call it, out of government and, and one another. Um, mm -hmm. So how did you, how did you arrive at your, at the demands? And in the States, we're having real problems with this, you know, so we have, you know, uh, uh, AOC and the, and the Green New Deal, and people are distorting it in the States as if the Green New Deal is asking that we you know, or that we make hamburgers illegal. And, and so people, oh, well, I don't want to go with, I don't want to, you know, sign on to that. I like my cow. Um, it, and, and it gets distorted right away. But I mean, what, what are, what, what's the easiest way to, to articulate um, the demands of, of, uh, of Extinction Rebellion of Parliament right now? Well, so I, I think on the one hand, they're really pretty clever and cute because, we ask, we, we, we demand, I don't really like that word somehow because this is a collective longing, isn't it? But uh, mm. we're, we're asking the government to tell the truth and to work with the media, to work alongside the media to communicate that truth to citizens and to reverse any policies that are inconsistent with the truth. That's the first one. The second one's about uh, rapid, rapid reduction in carbon, decarbonisation to net zero by 2025, I mean, some of these things might get tweaked, by the way, but there's somebody looking at the demands at the minute and um, a reduction in consumption consistent with, you know, removing the ecological overshoot where we use up more than the planet's worth of resources. The, the bit where I think it's cute is that we haven't said how this thing should be done, because what I think Extinction Rebellion is really about is democracy and saying that democracy is not capable in its current form of being that truthful and actually sorting it out and coming up with the right policies. And that's why that's why it hasn't been sorted out. You know, that's why there's still a massive subsidy to the fossil fuel industry and fracking starting across the world and incineration, all the rest of it. So the third demand is that we have, uh, and it might be a slightly different format in other countries, but we have 
a citizens assembly which is when you choose of order a thousand people by like it like a jury sort of randomly selected people a lot of experts come and with data and explain exactly what the situation is and then many different experts with solutions come and present ideas and that jury comes up with the final protocol for how this is solved and what that's done with extinction rebellion is it's meant that we've not wasted huge amounts of time arguing over different solutions because in all honesty like Naomi Klein once said you know your demands can only be as big as your movement and Mm. so it's kind of like a waste of I mean it's awesome that people have these debates you know they all need to happen about which is the best solution how would you do a green new deal what what is reality that to what extent do things have to be done and so on but what will happen is that you'll get distracted debating those solutions whereas in reality it needs to be led by the people I I, I think I think there is an issue in the demands and this will just be a a, a personal opinion but it's a critique of Extinction Rebellion and I I do hope we're going to sort it out which is um the, the kind of climate justice and from my perspective also deep ecology is not baked into them strongly enough so the the, the minute the citizens assembly it's not, as i understand it is it's it's something that you, you you leave to the people but from from my perspective you've got to make sure the solution's just i mean there's a solution to climate change that involves land grabbing and killing loads of people you know i mean that's one way of going about it isn't it the 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 the, the billionaires from their bunkers could release a few viruses that they've got the antidotes for i mean there's there's all sorts of solutions that are not cool you know yeah it seems it's why i mean uh, my my understanding of why trump and so many people are supporting a wall you know to block america from mexico is to stop the uh, immigration of of climate change refugees over the next two decades yeah, yeah, it'll be, I mean, literally, it's already happening in Europe where we let people drown in the sea. I mean, the issue is that if you look at the map of where what happens with the Greenland ice sheet melting, which is melting more quickly than was ever expected, it, it doesn't, it's, it's obviously not cool to, to, for, for the people that have done the least damage to the climate to be the one suffering the most and it's also the case that you're going to have migration within the United States anyway because so many of your cities and our cities in the UK are are on rivers are on the coast and they're going to go under so where are all those people going to go you know so you right. build well the ones in the in the middle are going under too I mean where where our producers up in uh, Omaha Nebraska which is inland and buried <laughs> and submerged yeah. yeah yeah and then the and that you'll get areas of drought um and and also all these other places that our racism allows us to decide that we can just ignore uh certainly in the uk it's places where we get a lot of our food from so you look at a map and think oh well you know the, the water problem's not not in, in my country well actually by the way that's where you get your dinner from you know Right. Well, that whole one white Western European or American life is worth, you know, 16, you know, brown ones of sub-Sahara Africa. And it's like, um, <laughs> it's like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, that, 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 and, and, and media helps perpetuate this dehumanization of our, you know, of our brothers and sisters in other places as if you know, being in another country means they're not part of you. And, and I think there's, yeah, exactly. But I think there's also, 
something really profound here that that needs to shift and I'm glad you use that brothers and sisters piece because we're a family and and the trees are our grandparents and they oh okay this is a pagan in me speaking but you know the the animals are our cousins and there's um, a deep deep interconnectedness that ecological science would 100% back up here we live in a system that's based on the idea of scarcity that there's not enough and so therefore I've got to be in competition when the reality of nature is that everything is food for something else it's a it's an utterly miraculously abundant system if only you will you know, tune into that. And that doesn't mean becoming primitive. That be- means, you know, using the new technologies of biomimicry and so on. Right. I mean, this is this is so key to w- the fight that I've been having, which is, you know, to, I've been arguing that, that the digital retrieves the medieval, you know, at its best. We're, we're retrieving, I mean, because when I hear what you're talking about, a lot of it comes from uh, alchemical, magical, uh, pre, you know, Francis Bacon style scientific uh, rape, if you will, you know, and it's 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 both ancient in that sense, and that you're retrieving your myth of the eternal return. You're retrieving uh, 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 sort of uh, pre-modern understandings of of uh, science and energy and and connectedness. At the same time, that you're you're informed by i mean as a, a a phd molecular biologist you're informed by systems theory you know which you know which i guess bucky fuller and 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 norbert wiener and 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 uh, uh bateson and folks kind of brought back for us but we're only coming to understand you know our our, our place in reality and the environment as a combination mm. of these very modern digital age understandings of systems and interrelatedness and these sort of more ancient understandings of chaos that we're maybe finally courageous enough to to retrieve not to return to but to retrieve and 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 be informed by it's what charles eisenstein um calls the new old story Mm. so it's an ancient story but there's going to be a new version of it isn't there it's a reunion but this idea that we're all separate from each other and all powerless is completely incorrect. And um, we're, we're getting that story back, but, you know, backed up by lots of different science, backed up by um, art and culture in, 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 the, in its best formats. But that's why, I mean, it's why it's a molecular biologist and a fashion activist join up, you know, and, and because what you're doing is not just calculated climate activism, but this kind of retrieval of, I mean, I hear the words you, you use, retrieval of love, retrieval of, of emotion, a retrieval of paganism, of poetry, of, of magic, you know, in order to fight what are essentially demons at this point. I mean, I think another way of looking at it, Douglas, and I'm sure you've covered that in previous research and so on, is that is this sort of teal consciousness, isn't it? It's this sort of idea from spiral dynamics that mm. you can look about, look back at and look at all the different consciousnesses that we bring. You know, I mean, see me when I'm hangry, as they say, you know, that's a version of consciousness, isn't it? It's like well, <laughs> on the day of my moon cycle when I want to kill everybody. I mean, this is we, we all have different versions of ourselves running, but there's a, a, a version of consciousness that's coming online now and that's that's kind of to look at all these consciousnesses and see the value in them and what they bring and where the limitations are and to integrate them 
and to bring the new way forwards. Um, and that's even, is that even the forms of consciousness that, that, that people we don't like have? <laughs> Well, we, we have to stop not liking them. We, there are, there are fam I mean, y y we've got quite a sort of funny tension, if you like, in XR, but I think it's creative. I don't think it's a problem where my colleague Roger will be like, ah, the elites, the elites, ah, and I'm kind of going, we are, you know, uh, I didn't invent this phrase, but, you know, we are the 100%. We're all, we are really all in this one together. And of course, there's some awful behavior by some people that need sorting out, but but, you know, when people get into that kind of, you know, tribal conservatism, uh, there's, there's a part of me that totally is behind the idea that your family comes, you know, your immediate family is that's where your responsibilities most immediately lie and that you want people to have personal responsibility. I can see the, uh, uh, you know, put uh, my, my son's in a football team, put me in that front of that team and I'm... <laughs> I want them to win, you know. I mean, there, there is that energy in them. I just don't need to go and punch anybody in the face about it, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Right, but there's a way to leverage that too. I mean, so in America, if we see, well, look, you know, Donald Trump shows up in a town and twenty or 30,000 people are willing to gather into a stadium, you know, to cheer and to be together, there's something's being fed that that – needs to be fed there too. And there's a there's an energy and a frustration that's expressing expressing itself that could be used for the benefit of all of us as well. Well I, I think you have to look at and it's you know outside of my psychological knowledge i mean i think i think um, george lakoff's a good, good author in this case but how how things get framed and which emotions get tapped into i think it's a little harder probably to tap into the emotion of love over the emotion of hate but it's so much more powerful when you're in there you know you look you look at any stories about wars and you can get people to do really really terrible things but there's there's a place when people come out of that madness and, and go my god what did we do you know but in order to do that though i mean the the thing i experienced the other night and i'm still wrestling with today uh I mean, I'm not saying I'm a Superman, but but I don't know how many people would want to deal with that or to push through that or could quite face that or wouldn't just take an Oxycontin or a Prozac to not <laughs> feel it. You know, it's just, this is pretty hard. It's a pretty difficult place we're bringing people to. I mean, maybe kids could do it more easily, you know. I think for me, like, there's something here about, like, about empathy and there's something else about, like, the situation that we've put ourselves in where if you really confront it you feel like you've got nothing to lose because we are about to lose everything and that's the confrontation which is very liberating for quite a lot of people who feel like constantly contorted and compromised and in pain because they're trying really hard to be part of a system that's like making us all sick that's making us all unhappy um that you know that you understand that if you win off it you win off the back of a lot of other people's suffering like there's nobody who's part of sort of capitalist western civilization i think that doesn't really sort of like know that deep down and a friend of mine said something when the financial crash happened i had a, a mate who's really like not political at all and um and she just came out with this thing. She was like, Joe, I don't give a shit about this crash because, like, I've got nothing to lose. So it's like, what do they want? I've got nothing, so they can't fucking touch me, right? So it doesn't matter. I don't. I really don't care. I don't care about the economy and I don't care about rich people. I don't care about anything. 
And I was like, it's really funny because there's there's some sense of like when you go through those dark nights and you think right, we're so close to not being able to fix this anyway, we're so close to the edge and that's what kind of I felt like I'd gone through thinking, well, I'm totally disenfranchised with green capitalism, it's a load of shit and like we've lost and I don't really know what to do with the rest of my life. Like if you feel like you've got nothing to lose then you're able to, then you're able to like act in new ways and that's in a way like I feel like the people who reached for that rhetoric of like build a wall or find solidarity with people who are going to pick up their guns and like protect some little thing that they've that they've got and blame scapegoat groups of people like they they're, they're really doing it out of a place of trying to protect something that they feel they're going to lose in a way that feels to me quite strong and my project that I was saying about turning the body into a message. We worked on this long, long document together, putting ideas into it about what we thought we wanted to wear. And we felt like everybody needed an injection of like positivity and resistance and not just anti, anti stuff. And we, all the words that came to the top that we felt the the most, that resonated the most and felt the most urgent were words like empathy and humility, frugality, compassion. And we neither of us practice religious uh, anything and we um, and we were quite struck by the fact that these were precisely the things that we wanted to like emblazon our clothes with and walk around trying to start conversations about so for me it speaks to that there's a longing like Gail said I think for for these sort of things to be able to to be given space and be given like energy to rather than being sort of constantly squashed and pushed to the side but at, at the same time, when you push through to the other side of that despair, you you pulled your art, you know, out of that that some organization that was getting money from arms dealers, right? So that personal sacrifice. So here you have art that's going to get seen and written about. And, oh, pull that out. You go get arrested, I think, at Heathrow. You did mm-hmm. a, a, a Gandhi-like two-week hunger strike. Um which are these acts of, of, from my perspective, as, you know, a coddled little American who, <laughs> you don't want to see me if I don't get my coffee and my, my morning muffin. Um, <laughs> um, it seems like this act of extreme, I mean, it's not just a seem, these are acts of extreme courage, of, of, of fortitude. So, I mean, not just to praise you for doing these things, but um, the, the place from which you're able to draw the strength to do that is on the other side of that chasm. It's like you push through the despair and then is there this some kind of an energy that comes that allows you to do these Gandhi-like uh, feats of, of resistance? I've, I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> That's a great answer. There's a there's a myth in uh, that that's well known as an archetype, isn't there, about the hero's journey and each individual having their their journey to be their better self. It is, and I think Claire used that word before. Before it's a liberation. It's it's a it's a deep joy. I, I'm having the time of my life. You know, I really am. <laughs> I mean, uh, I went into a ceremony this weekend and I went really through the mangle, but I just, well, I'm, I, I really am in a kind of, so be it, you know, bring it on. Um, it's, it's quite a, 
an epic feeling in a way. It's not the only one. I mean, you know, I like a cup of coffee as well, Doug, Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> we're all we're all cuddled. We're all. I, I think the other thing people have to understand is that there's not a choice here, really. I mean, you're not going to get off this one lightly. I, I, I either we sort this out or the economy is going to collapse. You know, it's been good from our perspective that Sir David Attenborough is like a real national treasure in the UK is on record as saying that the civilization could, you know, it's likely to collapse. So when civilizations collapse, it's not pretty. People are on streets. You get cannibalism. You get uh, food shortages. You get riot. You know, it's it's not cool. There's no, there's you're unlikely to be able to protect yourself in that kind of culture. So we, in, in David Wallace Wells book, he's, he quotes some research that for every one degree of warming, the economic growth will go down by 1%. So it's finished. It's, you know, we have to go, it's over the civilization. And, and as some people have said, we're up to our neck in canaries in the coal mine, you know, whether it's the 74% of insect death or the 80% of earthworms that are gone or the, the little birds that have gone down by 70 you know it's 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 around us and we're on that list uh the the warming that's happening is is worse than the permian mass extinction we we so you know you you might want to cling on to your bit of comfort for now but actually the deal is wake up because if we sort it out now it's going to be amazing it's going to still be painful it's still still going to be a mess with inner catastrophe it's not we're not going to get rid of it but it's going to be a damn sight better doing this in a connected way than waiting for some kind of hideous version of eco-fascism to take over and decide that all our children have to go to war to fight over water. I mean, I'm not having it, you know, if right. you're, if, and if you're a parent, especially, come on, folks, wake up. Political theory from people like Hannah Arendt says that the power lies in the collective. And we just that's the bit that we've got to get with this. It, it, it's when we're together and you have these days on the bridges and you look in each other's eyes. We, when, we t- when we took over Parliament, a friend of mine was singing this beautiful song about if you want to know where the power lies, take a look into each other's eyes. And you have these moments of feeling that when we really know that as a human species, that we're a collective and that we believe in each other and we believe in ourselves. Right. I mean, I feel like part of the, part of the, it's interesting, part of the beauty of the protests you know, when I was watching the videos of it, first I was concerned that it's happening on all these separate bridges. So how are they all part of the same thing? But then I saw that, oh, this is more beautiful even, that there's these, each one is its own party. You don't need to even be part of some central one. It's not Bruce Springsteen at the, you know, in the middle main one. It's like, no, we're each having our own one. And it sort of set up the idea that, oh, we could sit on the bridge in my own little town, you know what I mean, and have our yeah. own 30 people sit there. So when, when you start talking about economic solutions, I feel like it, it sometimes it's a, a, one trap I see people getting into is like, oh, we've got to change the global economy somehow by all joining together. And the global economy, this scaled notion of economics is itself part of the problem. And I'm so much more in favor of, okay, how could this community create a, a favor bank or its own currency or its own connection with the local agriculture so that that if I were going to have a pull the plug moment, it would be, when are you willing to pull the plug from your connection to the global economy and and take care of 80 or 90% of your economic needs uh, locally? And what would Brilliant. that look like? 
Brilliant. Yeah, totally. It's circles of circles of circles, isn't it? We, it starts very local and that's where most of it needs to happen. Thanks so much, first, for what you're doing. I mean, I, I guess if people are interested in, in obviously, if they're in the UK, um, go outside on, on April 15th and you'll, you'll see what's happening. And in the States, I guess people should go, uh, you know, find the websites for, and we'll link to it, you know, but for, for, for Reverend Billy, for Sunrise, for and Extinction Rebellion, I'm sure, has links to the global uh, many of the global local possibilities. It, it, it's it's the website is rebellion earth, and uh, by the way, the UK is quite a lot bigger than London. <laughs> yeah. So if if you go outside in Milton Keynes or um, Hemel Hempstead or South Emsall in West Yorkshire, you might not see people blocking bridges. You need to get <laughs> you need to get down to London. Um, we do have a few countries in the UK like Scotland and Wales as well, but the invitation is is mostly focused on London. But yeah, there's all, all the information people needs is on 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 rebellion.earth um oh and one thing i didn't ask you about was um you you are you all you're connected with uh greta the young woman from from sweden who's been so articulate on on much of what's happening are you are you you know friends with her was she on your at your bridge events or she came to our launch event and helped us to launch the uh Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, she's awesome. I'm a, a massive fan. So we can't save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to change and it has to start today. So everyone out there, it is now time for civil disobedience. It's time to rebel. Yeah, and it, again, you know, and she always ends her speeches with, and well, you're not going to do anything. You're going to listen and clap and then go on with what you're doing. I know it. So it's going to be up to me and my friends to make a difference. It's inspiring yet. It's also somehow disempowering. I feel like, no, no, I want to prove you wrong. I mean, good, good for her for winding up the adults. You know, she, when she sat outside the Swedish parliament, she's got some leaflets that say uh, in Swedish, the adults are shitting on our future. I mean, she doesn't pull her punches, does she? I think she's she needs to call out the grown-ups and these and the parents that are having. We have our heads in the sand. We've had our heads in the sand. We've been pretending that we're doing something about this, and it's we it's fair enough to get called on it. Well, uh, and also that response in Davos, you know, when she spoke and the and she and she just sort of made a really good point, which was basically quite accusatory of the people in the room. And they and they gave her a round of applause, and I just thought, what? How rude to sit there and go, oh, well done, little girl, you've worked us out, nice one. But like, do you know, you're still a little girl, so we'll just give you a round of applause and go, oh, that's sweet. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. she's what she, what she's trying to say is like, don't patronise me. Like, we're going to build a movement, and there's more of us than there is of you, and I've got faith, and like, we're just going to come and do it. So. You know, either either deal with it or don't, but it won't right. change get on the course board. of history. Right, get on board or get out of the way. <laughs> but this is happening. Oh, this is great. Well, I wanna I wanna let you go back to uh, fighting fighting against our extinction. But um, and most most importantly, um, you know the the most common email I get, and this one I probably get over a hundred a day, are from people saying, "Oh, I listen to Team Human. I love it. How do I join Team Human? Where do I go?" And I've resisted forming a team human movement because, well, because it's not something, I don't want it to become a solipsistic thing that people are doing it to do it. You know, it's not, 
This is a podcast or a book or I'm a person. I'm not a movement. But if you do want to join Team Human, um, join the Extinction Rebellion. Yay. You know, join Sunrise. <laughs> that this is this is it. You know, if, so anyone who asks me, anyone who's listening and has sent that email, this is it. This is the thing you join. And not only is this a, 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 an available opportunity, this is an all hands on deck moment, right? This is it. You can rise to the occasion of your humanity or not, you know, and you'll get uh, uh, maybe another couple of opportunities, but this could be the last one. (laughs) This could be your moment, uh, the moment where you choose and where we as a species choose um, to keep on going, you know, not to accept our imminent demise and, and, and to... I mean, gosh, not just for the children, but for, for life itself. Um, life is a cool thing to have, have happened, whether it's spontaneously emerged or whether it's the expression of a pre-existing consciousness. But it's something that really can, um, this instance of it um, can, can, is fragile and is, uh, requires our participation at this point. And um, um, these women are uh, one, offering one terrific gateway um, to that participation. So, you know, thank you for doing that. Thank you so much um, for being on Team Human and for trying to make it so Team Human gets to uh, uh, live another day. You're really welcome. And uh, being really practical, it'd be great if you had a, a, an automatic reply to your email with uh, our website in and Sunrise <laughs> and, and all of that, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll yeah, make a... Um, here's some Team Human opportunities. Exactly. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guests today were Extinction Rebellion founders Gail Bradbrook and Claire Farrell. You can find out more about Extinction Rebellion at rebellion.earth or find the links at teamhuman.fm. If you're in the U.S., you may want to check out sunrisemovement.org, a similarly organized movement to promote the Green New Deal. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.